Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, as we continue our exposition of Luke's gospel, we come to another parable of Christ. Please begin reading with me at Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, this is your truth, your holy word. Guide us now to understand it. To understand, Lord, what it means to understand how it comes from your heart to ours for our good. To understand, Father God, that this is the way of righteousness, Lord, that we are instructed toward humility. And to also, Father God, understand that only in the humility of Christ is this possible for us. We pray this in the precious name of Christ our King. Amen. You'll notice that I've entitled my sermon this morning, The True Sinner's Prayer. Because what we see represented for us here is a prayer of, of true brokenness and humility. Now, when we refer to the, the sinner's prayer, you all are familiar with this, we mean the brief written or spoken prayer that a, appears at the end of gospel tracts or that is often recited at the end of evangelistic services. This is where the sinner is often encouraged to recite those same words of a prayer as an outward expression of their inward faith to believe in Jesus Christ. I went to school with Paul Chitwood. He is our current president of the International Mission Board. He actually did his dissertation on the sinner's prayer. It's accessible online. It's actually a good read. But according to his historical analysis, forms of the sinner's prayer began being used in worship services really at the turn of the last century, the very late 1800s into the early 1900s, during a time when Charles Finney's new measures were finding wider and wider acceptance in the church, and we had the rise of revivalism in the church. He goes on to note in his dissertation that the two men most responsible for popularizing the sinner's prayer were Billy Graham and Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And we want to note that, that crying out to God and expressing your faith in the form of a prayer is a good biblical response when a person realizes their sinfulness and is expressing their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible itself tells us to, to cry out to God. Numerous figures throughout church history, even the Puritans, concluded their preaching of the gospel with a charge to sinners to humble themselves, to, to pray to the Lord, to confess their sins, to believe in Jesus, and to trust in the Lord for his forgiveness and grace. 
I'm going to reference this a little later in my sermon, but I found out just this week that even George Whitfield, during the first Great Awakening, authored a form of a sinner's prayer. But here's the difference. Those earlier preachers and writers never used a prayer in a way that, that pushed people towards decisions. They never pushed people to pray a prayer as evidence of their outward decision to believe in Jesus Christ. And I, and I do want to say here, I, I have dear friends and brothers in the ministry, maybe even some of you in this room, who at some point maybe were led to pray a sinner's prayer, and that was the real means by which you expressed a real faith that you walk in and enjoy today. However, in the last several decades, we, we have begun to realize that this method of using a repeat-these-words-after-me kind of prayer in our evangelistic services and in our gospel tracts, that that has resulted in a huge number of people being deceived into thinking that they're saved when they're really not. You see, first of all, the theology of most versions of the sinner prayer, sinner's prayer is incredibly weak, and the language is very trite and, and even unbiblical. The call of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. The call of the gospel is not ask Jesus into your heart. Secondly, while it is right to admonish sinners to seek the Lord in prayers of confession and repentance and faith, telling them to recite a prayer that is not even their own words very often leads them to believe that the recitation of the prayer is what saves them. And thirdly, the way that this method is often employed at the end of a gospel service is, is just very man-centered. It is based on producing decisions for Christ, and it is frequently done with a degree of emotional manipulation. We come to our text this morning, brothers and sisters, to see the real spirit, the real heart of a true sinner's prayer, to see what it means to really cry out to God when a sinner acknowledges their, their need for forgiveness and grace. So let us have that heart to see and understand and learn that today. First of all, as we go to Jesus' parable, we see the danger of self-righteous prayer. The danger of self-righteous prayer. Look there at verse 9 of our text. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, we know from the gospel accounts that Jesus continually found himself in the presence of, religious, of a, a religious establishment that was rife with corruption and self-righteous pride. In one encounter after another, Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees who were jealous to maintain their control over the people, who boasted about their obedience to the law and the traditions of men and who were openly hostile to him as he taught, healed, and ministered to the people. Notice that verse 9 here says that he told this parable directly to some of them. He was in a setting where there were a number of these religious leaders who were obviously present. And one of the saddest descriptions in this whole account is that these people are described by Christ as some who trusted in themselves. The irony of the statement is that these people, these religious leaders, claim to be the, the ultimate arbiters and stewards of God's holy word. Yet the whole testimony of Scripture points to the necessity of trusting in God, not oneself. From the very beginning, it was God who created man. It was God who gave man his holy law. It was man who sinfully broke God's law. 
It was man who was separated from God by his sin. And it was God who pronounced the curse of death, but it was also God who provided the first sacrifice of animals to cover the nakedness and shame of man. The whole Mosaic system of laws that came centuries later focused on the same truth. Man is sinful and we make sacrifices as expressions of our faith, trusting in the fact that God is holy, that he alone is the source of forgiveness, and that he will ultimately be the one who makes atonement for us. But all that was lost on the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They had become blinded by their own sin. They had a twisted understanding of the faith. They truly trusted in themselves. As Jesus says here, they trusted in their own righteousness. They believed that they could achieve God's perfect standard on their own steam, that they could be acceptable to him and counted as holy in his sight on the basis of their own merit. And as a result of their self-righteousness, Jesus says they treated others with contempt. Isn't it interesting how self-righteousness and legalism always seems to go hand in hand with judgmentalism and contempt for others? Why is that? Why do we so often find self-righteousness manifesting as treating others with contempt? Well, here's why. First of all, if you are judging yourself to be righteous, then you have already put yourself in God's place. And if you have put yourself in God's place over your own life, it is only natural that you're going to put yourself in God's place over other people's lives. Secondly, if you are judging yourself to be righteous, you think that it is possible for men to be righteous on their own. Therefore, when you see sinners, you think that they could be where you are if they would just try harder. And so you berate people with the law and you despise them and treat them like God-haters for not trying harder. Thirdly, if you are judging yourself to be righteous, then there's no need for God's grace or mercy in your life. And if you have no need for God's grace or mercy, then you are not going to be merciful or graceful towards others. And finally, if you are judging yourself to be righteous, then you are deceived and prideful. And when you are in this place of deceptive pride, you have contempt for anyone who would try to correct you. You likewise have contempt for anyone who seems to have found joy and grace and forgiveness apart from your legalistic system. Make no no mistake, brothers and sisters, this kind of prideful legalism is always lurking at our spiritual doorstep. The moment that we begin to measure ourselves by the standards of men rather than by the standard of Christ, we have welcomed prideful legalism into our hearts. And this is where we must pause and consider the grace of our Lord Jesus. Are we not thankful for Christ that he has rescued us from condemnation under the law by perfectly keeping the law and dying in our place on the cross? This is what Paul celebrates in Colossians 2, verse 13 and following when he says, And you... This is us, all of us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
The Bible tells us, brothers and sisters, that all of us continually fall short of the glory of God. All of us continually break his laws. But isn't it wonderful to know that if we have trusted in Jesus, the record of our lawlessness has been nailed to the cross with him. Jesus himself is our Savior, and he whom we are one with has shown us the right heart. If anyone ever had a right to be prideful about their spiritual standing, it was Jesus, right? He was the only perfect, sinless man ever to live. He was the only one who could claim to be justified in God's sight on his own. And yet Jesus never looked on sinners with contempt, did he? Jesus looked on sinners with compassion. Jesus never acted independently of the Father, but always in humble submission to and dependence upon the Father. Jesus never held himself aloof and apart from sinners. He ate with them and talked with them and forgave them. You know, legalists go out of their way to condemn people. Jesus went out of his way to love people and to give himself as a sacrifice for their sins. And even now, brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't berate us with the law. He embodies the righteousness of the law, and he gives us the gospel so that we may be born again and follow God's law out of a deep love for him. This is why, brothers and sisters, we're to never trust in ourselves. We're to guard ourselves from this error of the Pharisees. Never trust in yourself, but only in Christ. That takes us to the next point. The next thing we see in this text is the comparison of two sinners' prayers. The comparison of two sinners' prayers. So verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So with this parable, Jesus draws a very stark contrast between these two men. In the time of Christ, it was normal for faithful Jews to go up into the temple courts to pray. And so Jesus presents us with a Pharisee and a tax collector, two men who in that culture were polar opposites of one another. The Pharisees were keepers of the law. They were perceived to be the embodiment of Jewish piety and godliness. They were well respected and even revered by the Israelites for their faithfulness to God's Torah. But the tax collector, the tax collector on the other hand, they were, they were reviled by the Jews. They were hated as traitors among the Jewish people. They were in partnership with the oppressive Roman government. They often extorted more than just the required tax money from God's people. And they were viewed with even more contempt than prostitutes and thieves. And so how did these two different men pray? Well, first we have the Pharisee. Look at verse 11. Standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. As we think about this prayer, let's consider three things. Let's think about his posture, his standard, and his salvation. First of all, his posture. This Pharisee in the parable, he arrived into the courts of the temple like it was his domain. He would have gone right up into the court for Jewish men, one of the innermost courts, maybe even into the court of the priests if he were a Levite. And as a demonstration of his piety and his superiority, he wasn't going to be close to any others who might be there praying. He stood apart from all others. And in that culture, the normal position for praying was standing and looking heavenward with your hands raised. 
And so that's exactly what this man did. He lifted his face towards the sky, and his prayers were offered out loud. So given his posture and his separation, he was making his prayer a very public display. Now consider his standard. Notice that he refers to himself five times in this very short prayer. He says, I, five different times. He is very proud of himself. And and he starts by expressing thankfulness to God, but he still feels like he's very much responsible for where he's at as, as a person spiritually. He could have said, God, I thank you that you did not allow me to be like these other men. He could have even prayed that way, but he didn't because he was so thoroughly absorbed with himself. He then very arrogantly named those other obvious sinners that he was surrounded by, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He must have seen or passed by the tax collector on his way through the temple grounds. In comparison to all these sinful men, he did appear to be a a fine, spiritual, upright man. But the glaring problem was that he judged himself as righteous by comparing himself to the worst of sinners rather than by comparing himself to the standard of a holy God. Finally, his salvation. He concluded his prayer by listing a couple points from his spiritual resume, right? He feels like he's he's achieved it. First, he fasts twice a week. Now, the only fasting required by the law of God was on the Day of Atonement. That is the only place, the only time that Israelites were commanded to fast was on the Day of Atonement, so just once a year. So in the mind of this Pharisee, he was already doing 104 times better than what the law required because he fasted twice a week, 52 weeks a year. Next, it says he gave tithes of all he got. Now, the law required you to tithe many things but not everything. So once again, this man was exceeding God's requirement. Everything he got, he gave a tenth of it back to the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? This man, this Pharisee, believed that he lived at a standard higher than God's law. And in his pride, he thought he was saved by his works. Though he was praying to God, His words were nothing more than a deceptive celebration of self-effort. Go on to the tax collector in verse 13. Look at how the tax collector prayed. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Think about his posture. First of all, we want to we start by noting that most tax collectors wouldn't have even dared to go up into the temple courts at the time of prayer. They were truly hated and ostracized by their fellow Israelites. Literally, this man would have been walking through the temple and people would have been parting the way because they just didn't even want to be near him. They would have been scoffing at him. They would have been looking at him, every one of them, with that same heart of the Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like him. But this tax collector came anyway because he knew that his needs could only be met by God. First, Jesus says that he was standing far off. Many scholars think that this means that he felt himself unworthy even to come up into the court of Jewish men. They say that this means very likely that he stood far back in the court of the Gentiles. 
This man knew the depths of his sin, and he felt like he didn't even deserve to be counted among the people of God by going up into the Jewish courts. Secondly, Jesus says he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, which again, that was the normal posture for prayer, to look heavenward. But this man wouldn't even do that. He was broken over his sin. In a sense, he was so ashamed that he didn't even want to look God in the eye. Third, Jesus said he beat his breast. This was not a show of bravado. It was a physical acknowledgement that he deserved God's punishment. That was his posture. Now, what was his standard? Well, listen, listen to a simple prayer. Seven words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Seven words in the English, five words in the original Greek. And there's two things we want to note in the original language, in the Greek. First of all, the Greek uses the, the definite article. The man doesn't refer to himself as a sinner. The man refers to himself as the sinner. This is just one of those rare places where the ESV didn't get it. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He views himself as the worst sinner on the planet. Secondly, the term translated as be merciful to me is actually translated better as God, be propitious to me. It's the same root of the word propitiation, only in the form of a verb. In other words, this man is pleading, God, appease your own wrath towards me and reconcile yourself to me. Because that's what propitiation is. It's the appeasement of God's wrath followed by reconciliation. Clearly this man, this man was measuring himself against the standard of God. And he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was a wretched sinner who only deserved God's infinite wrath. And yet in faith, he came to cry out for mercy. And that takes us to his salvation. The tax collector knew that there was nothing he could do to save himself, nothing he could do to reconcile himself to a holy God. His prayer reflected the fact that he was absolutely dependent upon the Lord. Without God's mercy, without God's grace, without God's work, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no reconciliation going to happen. He knew above all he needed the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart that we are to have. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can do nothing. You know, many of you remember because you prayed for us back in the month of February, we went down to Florida to celebrate Lisa's mother's birthday. She turned 92. And at that birthday celebration, you know, you shared a lot of memories and a lot of stories and while we were there, she shared the story of one of the hardest things she ever went through. When she was a young mother, this was before Lisa was born, she just had three little boys, and David, the youngest of the three boys, was just a toddler. And she, they were out in the yard one day, and she wanted to go over. She needed to say something to a neighbor, so she told the older two boys, hey, keep an, keep an eye on your little brother David. She went and talked to the neighbor, and after just a few minutes, she came back, and she looked around, and David wasn't there. She said to the older boys, hey, guys, where's, where's your brother? He said, well, and her mother's instinct led her right into the backyard where they had an above-ground pool, and she, went and she looked in that above-ground pool, and there was her little toddler David at the bottom of that pool, not moving. Of course, she leapt in the water, and she pulled out his limp body, 
And just as a younger girl, she had gone to some stuff at the YMCA and where they had taught how to resuscitate someone from drowning. And she did those things. And after a few moments, David was sputtering and crying, choking up the water that had filled his lungs. Brothers and sisters, that's just that's a picture of us apart from Christ. We are not just drowning in sin. We are at the bottom of the spiritual pool already gone. Only Christ can save us. And a true sinner's prayer embodies that heart. Oh Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, to Mary, I am the resurrection, to Martha rather, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Is that your heart this morning? Do you know and understand that there is nothing, nothing in you that merits God's favor? Even as a Christian, the fruit that I pray that you are bearing in your life, even that fruit is a testimony to the mercy of Jesus Christ that is operative in you. It is not you yourself. Maybe you're here today and you have yet to take that first step of faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to understand, apart from the Lord, you deserve only his wrath and punishment and separation it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that any of us are saved. All of us, all of us, I, everyone here, we all are sinners. We all deserve his wrath. But Jesus Christ has given himself to spare us of that wrath. He fulfilled the law with a sinless life. He died on the cross as the substitute sacrifice for sins. He rose from the grave defeating death. Believe in Jesus if you have not, friend. He is the only way, the only way you can have hope of life eternal after this one, the only way there's hope for forgiveness of sins and a reconciled relationship with him who made you. That takes me to the third and final point of our text this morning, the verdict of the one who receives our prayers, the verdict of the one who receives our prayers. In verse 14, Jesus gives the lesson of this parable. Look there. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, this final statement would have been scandalous to the religious leaders who were listening to Jesus that day. They would have heard this from him and they would have said, how, how dare anyone say that some wretched tax collector is going to be justified in God's sight before we are? They would have gnashed their teeth at him. But brothers and sisters, that's the plain truth from the mouth of our Savior. Those who exalt themselves, touting their own works as the basis for their justification, they are going to be humbled in hell for all eternity. Those who humble themselves, and remember, that by the grace of God itself. Those who by the grace of the Spirit realize that they have nothing, that they are nothing, and that they merit nothing before a holy God. When they believe and cry out to Jesus for mercy, they will be justified. 
They are the ones who will be exalted and glorified in the bliss of God's presence forevermore. And this is where we begin to see how this whole chapter in Luke ties together, right? If you look at where we ended last week, if you go back to verse 8, you know, it asks the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? And Jesus here at the end of this next parable is saying, yes, he will find faith in the earth. And guess what? It's not going to be where you expect it to be found. It's not going to be found amongst the religious leaders who are acting all pious and godly and praying openly in the courts. It's going to be found among the worst of sinners who realize in their wretchedness how badly they need the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message to us today is clear. Brothers and sisters, we must beware of Pharisees even today. There are, there are persons, there are churches, there are entire denominations that focus all on the outward. What you wear, whether or not you do or do not use makeup, what version of the Bible you have. And, and they've falsely said that all these different laws and rules are the measures of spirituality. And I think in one sense, there is a true desire for holiness and separation in the, from the world, but it gets so twisted up with pride in many people. Sam Storms said the following. He said, there are people, professing Christian people, who are determined to bring you under their religious thumb. They are bent on making you a slave of their conscience. They have built a tidy religious box without biblical justification, and they strive to stuff you inside and make you conform to its dimensions. They are legalists, and their tools are guilt, fear, intimidation, and self-righteousness. They proclaim God's unconditional love for you, but they insist on certain conditions before including you among the accepted, among the approved elite, among God's favored few. They threaten to rob you of joy and squeeze the intimacy out of your relationship with Jesus. They may even lead you to doubt your salvation. They heap condemnation and contempt upon your head so that your life is controlled and energized by fear rather than freedom and joy and delight in God. Brothers and sisters, beware of measuring yourselves by the standards of men, by espousing any other standard than that, than that what is clearly given in God's own word. Instead, trust in Christ. Look to Christ. We see in this text a very clear call to humility. We are able to be humble because Christ has been humble for us and to us. Christ humbled himself to save us out of our pride and deceit. Jesus did not regard equality with thing to, a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, even your self-generated humility cannot save you. The humility of Christ, brothers and sisters, is what saves us. Hold Jesus closely. Rest and trust in Him. Look to Him as your standard. If Christ is your standard, that's a surefire guard against ever being given over to pride. Hold Him as your Savior. And you will never have to fear being given over to condemnation. Absolute dependence upon him, upon his tender mercies, is what characterizes the true sinner's prayer. Let me say that again. 
Absolute dependence upon him, upon his tender mercies, is what characterizes the true prayers of a sinner. And this is where, in conclusion, I want to draw us back to George Whitfield's prayer. If you'll look in your bulletin, I actually want you to follow along and read this with me. In your bulletin is an insert that has this prayer. This is George Whitfield. He wrote this. It is, he entitled it, A Prayer for One Desiring and Seeking After the New Birth. And as we read this, this is what I want you to think about. What is the posture that we see represented in this prayer? What is the standard that we see represented in this prayer? What is, what is the source of salvation that we see represented in this prayer? Follow along with me. Blessed Jesus, thou hast told us in thy gospel that unless a man be born again of the Spirit and his righteousness exceed the outward righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he cannot in any wise enter into the kingdom of God. Grant me, therefore, I beseech thee this true circumcision of the heart and send down thy blessed spirit to work in me that inward holiness, which alone can make me meet to partake of the heavenly inheritance with the saints of light. Create in me, I beseech thee, a new heart and renew a right spirit within me. For of whom shall I seek for succor but of thee, O Lord, with whom alone this is possible? Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me whole. Oh, say unto my soul as thou didst once unto the poor leper, I will be thou renewed. Have compassion on me, O Lord, as thou once had on blind Bartimaeus, who sat by the wayside begging. Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest what I would have thee to do. Grant, Lord, that I may receive my sight, for I am conceived and born in sin. My whole head is sick, my whole heart is faint. From the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, I am full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, and yet I see it not. Oh, awaken me, though it be with, shudder, with thunder, to a sensible feeling of the corruptions of my fallen nature, and for thy mercy's sake, suffer me no longer to sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Oh, prick me, prick me to the heart. Dart down a ray of that all-quickening light which struck thy servant Saul to the ground and make me cry out with a trembling jailer, what shall I do to be saved? Lord, behold, I pray and blush and am confounded that I never prayed on this wise before, but I have looked upon myself as rich, not considering that I was poor and blind and naked. I have trusted to my own righteousness. I flattered myself I was whole and therefore blindly thought that I had no need of thee, O great physician of souls, to heal my sickness. But being now convinced by thy free mercy that my own righteousness is as filthy rags and that he is only a true Christian who is in one inwardly, behold with strong cryings and tears, and groanings that cannot be uttered, I beseech thee to visit me with thy free spirit and say unto these dry bones, live. I confess, O Lord, that thy grace is thy own and that thy spirit bloweth where he listeth. And wast thou to deal with me after my deserts and reward me according to my wickednesses? I had long since been given over to a reprobate mind and I had my conscience seared as with a red hot iron. But O Lord... Since by sparing me so long thou hast shown that thou wouldst not the death of a sinner, and since thou hast promised that thou wilt give thy Holy Spirit to those that ask, I hope thy goodness and long suffering is intended to lead me to repentance, and that thou wilt not turn thy face away from me. 
Thou seest, O Lord, thou seest that with the utmost earnestness and humility of soul I ask thy Holy Spirit of thee and am resolved in confidence of thy promise who canst not lie to seek and knock till I find a door of mercy opened unto me. Lord, save me or I perish. Visit me with thy salvation. Lighten mine eyes that I sleep not in death. Oh, let me no longer continue a stranger to myself, but quicken me, quicken me with thy free spirit that I may know myself even as I am known. Behold, here I am. Let me do or suffer what seemeth good in thy sight. Only renew me by thy spirit in my mind and make me a partaker of the divine nature. So shall I praise thee all the days of my life and give thee thanks forever in the glories of thy kingdom, O most adorable Redeemer, to whom with the Father and the Holy Ghost be ascribed all honor and praise now and forevermore. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I know that that's a long illustration, but it captures humility. It captures brokenness. It captures a meditation upon Scripture. And it's a, it's a verbal expression of the realization that God and God alone can save and that it is purely His will. Salvation is not something we can claim for ourselves. It is something we cry out for mercy for and that God sovereignly grants. Let us remember this heart, brothers and sisters, as we pray, as we live this life, as we strive to obey, as we seek the glory of our Savior. Let us be a people who guard ourselves against pride, self-righteousness, legalism. Let us be a people who embody humility, a humility that flows from the very Savior who has made us one with himself. Amen.